please be seated. This morning, I want to share with you a principle that I think is very relevant to what's going on in our country right now and the things that are in the news. It's the principle of individual accountability. That means that you are responsible for you. That's both a liberating and a convicting principle. It's liberating because it means you're not accountable for your wife's sins. You're not accountable for your kids' sins. You're not responsible for your parents' sins or for the sins of previous generations that have gone before you. You are responsible for you. But it's a convicting truth because you can't blame your sins on anybody else. You can't blame your sins on your wife. You can't blame them on your kids. You can't blame them on your parents. You can't blame them on generations that have gone before you. you. Can't blame them on the government. You can't blame them on the media. You can't blame your choices. You are accountable for you. This principle is powerfully and clearly stated in a chapter in Ezekiel number 18. It's a chapter that if you're not familiar with, you really need to know this chapter. It's one of the key chapters in all of the Old Testament. And here, in, let me share with you the background of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel and 3,000 other Israelites had been taken into exile in Babylon, and they were feeling sorry for themselves, and they felt like victims. And they felt like they were there because of the sins of previous generations. And uh, it wasn't their fault. And so in Ezekiel chapter 18, the word of God comes to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? So they had a saying or a proverb that was common among these 3,000 exiles and also common back in Jerusalem. Some Israelites were still there. We know that because in Jeremiah 31, this same proverb is quoted there. And Jeremiah, who's back in Jerusalem, talks about it as well. Here was the proverb, The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Have you ever eaten any unripe fruit? Have you ever gotten an apple that was green and eaten it? Or have you eaten unripe blueberries or grapes? Or the worst is a persimmon. Have you ever eaten an unripe persimmon? It makes your mouth pucker. It makes your jaw hurt right back in here. Or if you grew up getting all of your fruit from the grocery store and you can't identify with that. Kids, have you ever eaten um, Sour Patch Kids? Or um, do they still have warheads? Do they still make warheads? They're eating warheads, you know, and they just hurt you right back in there. Well, what if you ate Sour Patch Kids and somebody else's jaw hurt? Well, that wouldn't be fair, would it? What if you ate a green apple and somebody else's mouth puckered? That was the proverb that they had. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They were saying, we're suffering because of somebody else's choice. We're victims. It's not our fault. Woe is me. And God said, verse 3, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you'll no longer quote this proverb in Israel. He said, I don't want to hear that anymore. And here's his principle, verse 4, key verse in the chapter. You need to get this. Everyone belongs to me, or every soul belongs to me, God says. Every soul's accountable to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike, belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. The wages of sin is death, but you don't die for somebody else's sins. You're not accountable for them. The one who sins is the one who dies. 
That's the principle of individual accountability or individual responsibility. Then to illustrate that, make sure you've got it, he goes through in this chapter then a series of three case studies. We're going to look at three generations to see this principle at work. So the first case study begins in verse 5. It is a righteous man, and it says in verse 5, suppose, so here's our first case study, suppose there is a righteous man who does what is right, just and right. And then it lists in the verses that follow five things that he does that delineate or demonstrate his righteousness. So I'm going to go through this list, and here's what the things that God's going to evaluate your life on. Maybe this is not exhaustive, but it's certainly five things that God cares about. You want to know what God wants from you? You want to know what God cares about, how he's going to evaluate your life? Let me list them for you. It says, first of all, he cares about your worship. Number one, your worship. Verse six, he does not eat this righteous man at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. His worship was pure. Some people say, it doesn't matter if you go to church. God says, I care about your worship. I care if there's idolatry in your life. Second, God cares about moral purity. Latter part of verse 6, he does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relationships with a woman during her period. It is a moral and ritual there in the Old Testament. Purity. God cares about your purity in our culture today. Maybe God doesn't care. God cares. He'll evaluate your life by your moral purity. Number three, he cares about honesty. Verse 7, he does not oppress anyone but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery. And then number five, God, or number four, God cares about compassion. He cares about your compassion. Still in verse seven, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He cares about generosity or compassion. And then number five, he cares about justice. Verse eight, he does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. That's justice. So here's five things that God cares about, five things that make a righteous man, five things he's going to evaluate your life about, your worship, your purity, your honesty, your compassion, and your justice. And so this man did those, and so it says in verse eight, uh, verse 9, he follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, we come to a second case study, the second generation is a wicked son. So this righteous man has a wicked son. You got it? And it's, it says in verse 10, suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. And again, it lists the same thing. I'll go through them quickly. I'll just read it. It's the same five things. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at interest and takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he's to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. So we learn here that righteousness is not transferable. Righteousness is not directly transferable. Certainly somebody can influence you. Parents are a huge influence. Thank God for godly parents. You're a big influence. But righteousness is not directly transferable. Your parents, like this man's parents, may have been good people, may have been Christian people. That does not guarantee you're going to get to heaven. That's why we practice believer's baptism. Your parents may have baptized you as an infant. That's their expression of faith. But we believe that you must confirm that. You must choose 
who you are, and that's why we practice only believers' baptism. That is, only people who are old enough to choose for themselves and put their own faith in Jesus Christ. It comes from this principle that righteousness is not transferable. You have got to choose. So sometimes I'll ask people, are you a Christian? They say, oh yeah, my, my grandfather was a preacher. Well, that's not exactly what I'm after right there, you know. Oh yeah, my mom taught Sunday school. Well, good, but righteousness is not transferable. All right, let's go on to the third case study. Now we're going to the third generation, and beginning in verse 14, and this third generation is the righteous son of a wicked man. Verse 14, but suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. And again, here we go with our same list of five things. Verse 15, he does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry, provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor, takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. And it says in verse 18, his father will die for his own sin because he practiced distortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. And so here we learn that guilt is not transferable. You're, that's, this is good news. You can be different from your parents. Maybe you had parents that didn't believe in God. You can be different. Maybe you've come from a long line of people who were of questionable moral character. You don't have to be that way. Guilt is not transferable. You see, we live in a, a culture of increasing victimhood in our nation where we all see ourselves as victims and all of our situation is somebody else's fault, right? And we're looking for somebody to blame. Can we blame previous generations? Can we blame the government? Can we blame other things? But God says the soul that sins is the one that will die. That guilt is not transferable. We got this from the very beginning. Do you remember the story of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And God said not to eat of the tree. And then they did. And God came to Adam and said, why did you do this? And you remember what Adam said to God? He said, that woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it, right? So in one sentence, he blames his wife and he blames God, right? That woman, whom you gave to me, by the way, she did. So we've started from the very beginning. Our, our tendency, our natural sinful tendency is to, to play the victim card, right? To blame somebody else. But this passage strongly tells us that that guilt is not transferable. Uh, Freudian psychology, Sigmund Freud, taught that all of your problems came from your childhood. And so the therapy was you dig through your childhood and repress memories and uncover them because it's something your mother did or your father didn't do or whatever. Well, maybe that helps you to understand something of who you are because certainly parents and people you grow up with have greatly influenced you, but it does not excuse your choices. In the end, you're still going to be accountable for that. And that's what this passage is is saying to us here. Now, you may be thinking, well, doesn't the Bible say that God punished this, this sin to the third and fourth generation? What about that? And yes, it does. In the Ten Commandments, you'll read that 
that passage where he's talking about the Ten Commandments, and he says that you want to keep these commandments because it can have repercussions for the third and fourth generation after you. Well, doesn't that contradict this? No. Certainly others influence you. Boy, the influence of family and is powerful. But there's a difference, I believe, between consequences and guilt. Consequences are visited on the third and fourth generation. People suffer. What we do now, people can suffer for it. Our generations have a national debt of trillions, and some of my grandkids or great-grandkids, somebody's going to suffer for it. Somebody's got to pay it. Our sins certainly have consequences in generations to follow, but guilt is not transferable. That guilt is individual, and so consequences can accrue, but guilt does not accrue. You are responsible for you. Now, that can be good news. You don't have to repeat the mistakes of others before you. You can, you can change your life. It means parents are not accountable for the sins of their children. Oh, parents, I know you grieve for your kids when they stray, but you do not make the choices. You're responsible for your influence, but you don't need to bear the guilt of anyone else, not your spouse, not your kids. God holds you accountable for your influence, but not for those choices because guilt is not transferable. He sums it up. Let me read to you verses 19 and through, through 20. You ask, does, why does the son not share the guilt of his father since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he'll surely live. The one who sins is the one who'll die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of, of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Let me share with you this statement. Others may be to blame for your circumstances, but you alone are accountable for your choices. Yes, others can put you in difficult circumstances in life, and, and you're not accountable for the circumstances that you have inherited or grown up with or that you live in, but you are accountable for what you do in those circumstances. Now, the chapter goes on to say that not only can change take place between generations, that's what we've seen so far, right? You don't have to be like your parents. But now we want to see that change can take place within your life. Maybe you started off badly. You don't have to finish badly. That's the good news. Look at verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sin they've committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. Boy, you need to... If you've had a, a past that hangs over you, you really need to underline verse 22 in your Bible. None of the offenses they've committed will be remembered against them. You hear that? If you've started, if you've had a rough start and you haven't started doing those five things, there's not been much justice, not much generosity or compassion, not integrity, not purity, not true worship. The good news is, if you'll repent, none of those offenses will be remembered. Isn't that great? You can change the direction of your life by the power of God. And you don't have to continue as you've continued. And you can let go of guilt from your past. It says none of those offenses they've committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they've done, they will live. Now, 
Verse 24 says you can change in the other direction as well. Maybe you started well and you're not finishing so well. Verse um, I hadn't read verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Isn't that a great statement? No, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I'm not pleased when they turn from their ways and live. Verse 24. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness they're guilty of and because of the sins they've committed they will die and you might read that and you say well wait a minute don't don't baptists usually believe in eternal security that you don't lose your salvation doesn't this contradict that it's saying you could start out well and then you apostatize and go astray and you're you're going to hell right i believe in eternal security but i certainly believe that that a mark of eternal security is that perseverance. Jesus said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And uh, so perseverance is a mark of truly being born again. W.T. Connor, an old Baptist theologian, said, a faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. And I think that's true. If your faith fizzles before the finish, it was flawed from the first. But it is very clear here that it's important how you finish, that you finish well. And so if you have, this verse is for you, if you have had some religious experience back as a kid, you walked an aisle, got baptized, and you've done nothing for Jesus since then, and there's been impurity in your life, and there's been no compassion, and there's been no justice, and there has been no integrity, and you're just counting all that in the past, this verse ought to shake you up a little bit. Because this verse says it's important how you finish, that you persevere to the end, and that a lack of perseverance to the end throws doubt upon the genuineness of your conversion. It's important how we finish in life. So, he ends this passage with a call to repentance. Verse 30, Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent! Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. You see, sin's going to be your downfall. And what we really come to understand from the New Testament, that every one of us fits in that case study of the second son. Every one of us is unrighteous. None of us is the first or the third son, uh, because Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Relatively righteous, yes. Absolutely righteous, no. And so there is not that perfection that will get us into heaven. And so we all need to repent. But the good news is we all can repent that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go to hell. And you're going to have to climb over the cross of Jesus Christ if you go to hell. Because the Bible says in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so verse 31 says, rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. There's an anticipation of the gospel in the New Testament, a new heart and a new spirit, because Jesus talked about being born again, that when you repent of your sin and put your faith in the one Savior, Jesus Christ, then you are born again. You're changed from the inside out. You have a new nature and you have new desires, a new heart and a new spirit within you. He can change you and give you different desires he says, why will you die, people of Israel? Verse 32, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. 
God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. It's not his will that anyone go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to have to pay for their sins, declares the sovereign Lord. The last words, repent and live. You can live. You can have eternal life no matter how you started, no matter what your heritage, no matter what your ancestry. You can have eternal life if you'll say, God, I turn from my sin to you. I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm going to lead in a prayer right now in a moment, and I'm going to invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sin. If you do so, your destiny can be changed from hell to heaven. You can have a new heart and a new spirit with a new nature and new desires, and you can be a different person with the joy of knowing none of your previous offenses will be counted against you. Now here's what I expect of you if you pray this prayer to receive Christ. I expect that you'll follow up in baptism as the formal confession of your faith and that you'll live for Christ as Lord of your life. Now next Sunday we're going to have baptism. Our original plan, this was our annual Sunday for our outdoor baptism and like COVID-19 has changed so many other things, it's changed that as well and we don't have a venue on Normandy Lake or on the Woods Lake that will let us have it. We'll have more than eight people gathered. We'll not allow large gatherings yet. So we can't do our outdoor baptism. So we're doing our baptism here in our worship center next Sunday morning. We have three people already planning to be baptized. You could join them today. After we close, I'll be at the Welcome Center. That's different from the last few weeks as we're beginning groups back today. So I'll be there. I'll be glad to step with you in, with you in the parlor. And today you could pray to receive Christ as Savior of your life. If you pray with me today, I'll, you can answer any questions. You, you can plan to be baptized next Sunday or August 16th. we got another baptism here August 16th. I already got people planning to be baptized then. This past Friday, we had children's day camp. Megan Clayton had her day camp. It's my privilege to preach at the end of the day. Five children accepted Christ as Savior. And some of them, perhaps, will be baptized next Sunday on August 16th. Uh, so, I invite you, if you want to join our church, stop by and see me on the way out. Uh, there are people who have already indicated, we want to join this morning. Great, you come and meet me there. We'll take your picture. We'll fill out a membership form. We'll answer any questions. Maybe you're watching our service on Facebook Live or later on our website, and you can join our church. You can accept Christ. You can be baptized next Sunday. Will you text me at 931-808-7975? or you can email me or whatever is convenient, call me uh, tomorrow, 931-808-7975. Uh, you can be baptized next Sunday, or you can join our church today. Let's pray together. If today you want to live, you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, would you pray this prayer with me right now? Dear Jesus, he can hear you in your heart. Just pray that to him if this is a sincere desire. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I want a new heart and a new spirit. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God who died and rose again. I ask you to be my Savior. I will follow you as Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me your gift of salvation. Amen.